Hello and welcome to There's No Business Like, a podcast where friends and industry colleagues explore topics and interview leaders in our industry of professional theatrical touring. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. I'm Kevin Maynard, Executive Director of Quad City Arts, and as always, I'm joined here by my friends, Josh. Hey, Josh Benson from Marion, Illinois, the Marion Cultural and Civic Center. Brian. Brian Zelmer, KU Presents in Kutztown, Pennsylvania. Danielle. Oh, hey, it's Danielle Van Hook from the Alden in McLean, Virginia. And Katie. Hey, everyone. Katie Miller with the Midland Center for the Arts in Midland, Michigan. Well, friends, this week I sat down with Baron Ryan and had a really great conversation. But one of the things that he talked about in his is his mission statement as an artist. So first, I wanted to ask you, um, do any of you have a mission statement that you currently use for yourself or in your business life? And if you don't, that is okay. I do not, but I love the idea. I've been kind of adapting one since the pandemic that went along with an entire mentality shift and attitude shift for me. And it is to both for business and for personal is to positively impact the community through whatever measures I can. Excellent. So I wouldn't say I have like a formal mission statement, but definitely in my work, I like to think of myself as a bridge builder. You know, we have a finite number of programs and other things we can do for the community. And some of those things should be for people to just find joy in the theater or in the space, whatever it is. And some of those things should be discovery and to put something out there that while it can be like unfamiliar is also not scary, right? As like a way to just like, you know, peek in a window and see into somewhere else. So I like to think of a lot of the programming that that I do and the work that I do is like building bridges. But I also heard a speaker a few weeks ago. um, And one of the things she said has really impacted me. And I haven't really quite figured out how this is like a thing that I can incorporate into my life. But she said that like, especially like responding when there's just something gut-wrenching and awful that happens in the world. And a lot of people say that they feel powerless or they feel helpless to help or anything. And like reframing that and thinking of like all of these different ways that collectively she could pretty easily say like, those of us that were in the room are some of the most powerful people on the planet. And so like reframing the sort of like, the space that you take up in the world and the tables that you get to sit at as not all of the things that you can't do, but like really thinking about how your presence is so powerful. Mm. I would not say that I have a formal mission statement, but I think everything I do in my personal life, in my volunteer work and in my professional life boils down to make the greatest impact you possibly can. Excellent. I like that. Well, I'd like to take just a minute or two. And if each of you has a piece of paper or maybe just your phone um, to help you write a a start of a three sentence mission statement, um, just to give you something to go with. And at the end of this, If you would like to share them, you can. If not, I will just give you the one that I wrote up using the exact same frame and really about the same amount of time that I'm going to give each of you. So to start out, I would like you to write three sentences. The first sentence is who you are. The second sentence is what you do. And the third sentence is why you do it. So while you are finishing up that, I will just tell you when I did this for the first time, I wrote that I am an arts admin. Um, What I do is, you know, I I create opportunities for artists and advocate for the arts. 
Um, and why I do it is mostly because I believe that it touches every aspect of our lives. All right. So does everybody have like a, a loose basis for those reasons? Again, like this doesn't yeah, need to be yeah, perfect. Yeah, this yeah. is meant to be fine tuned over time. And then the, the second step of this is to invert that, those three sentences. So you'll start with your first sentence is, you know, the why you do it. And you could start that sentence off with, you know, because I believe, and then insert your why. Um, and then you'll add your second sentence, which is what you do. You would say like, so I make, or I create, I whatever. And then you'll end with the who you are, which is the I am. So when I wrote mine using the examples that I gave you earlier, um, mine would quite simply read, because I believe the arts are essential and impact every aspect of our lives, I advocate for the arts and create opportunities for artists. I am an arts administrator. Mine would be, the arts are a proven way to enrich the community and bolster the business community. I work within the arts to positively impact the community. I am a father, husband, artist, presenter, and entrepreneur. I, I want to massage it more in, in real life and work on it. No, but... this is good. This is, yeah, I, I, I think this is nice to give people an example of things that aren't completely polished so that people know that this is just the phase one. Like, and this is where you start to massage that and, and make that into something different. Yeah, so uh, it's very rough, but what what threw me was flipping it around so uh, i had to i had to adjust some of my original sentences but i have to make the world a better place around me i facilitate connect and pursue adventure as an arts administrator ground beef tomatoes shredded lettuce tortillas taco seasoning sour cream and taco sauce i'm not sure i think that last part is a i want tacos tonight so. seeing you guys made me think of my taco family Taco friends. And then I'm like, mm, tacos. Well, friends, thank you for going through this exercise with me. I hope that this helps you and maybe some of our listeners, you know, begin the process of creating a mission statement for maybe their their artistic life or maybe their personal life. Um, but thank you for indulging me and in going through that. Now please enjoy Baron Ryan. My name is Baron Ryan. I'm a pianist and composer in whose music classic meets cool. Baron, thanks for joining me here today. And thanks for coming on There's No Business Like. To get started, I want to talk about your origin story and, so, and basically how you got started in music. Yes, my father's a professional pianist. And so from the time that I was born, I was exposed to music. I would see him play. We had family friends who would take us to see professional groups coming through town. I live in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and that's where I'm from as well. And so I had exposure from the time that I was conscious. And also from about that time, I wanted to be on stage because I thought, I want people to clap for me. So that was my first introduction <laughs> and motivation. How old were you when you started playing? I was four when I got my first piano lesson. My dad said that he wanted to teach me something useful. I had been banging on the piano, but not making any music. And so when he, we started lessons when I was four and I kept studying with him uh, with more or less regularity, depending on how busy either of us was until I was 17 and went to college. Oh, wow. Um, have you, I mean, th through that time period and then after that, did you start taking lessons with anybody else? I didn't. We actually had an offer, a family friend who also had a daughter who was taking lessons in, in top piano. Uh, she, her daughter wanted to take with my dad and they were willing to make a trade where I would take with uh, this friend. And I said, 
no, I don't really want to. I'd rather just take with you. <laughs> and I think my dad was a little surprised by that, but I think he was pleased. So it worked out well. Excellent. And when you were that age, I mean, your, your dad was touring and performing at that time, right? He was. He wasn't touring all the time. He was when there was opportunity, but he did want to be around for the family as well. So mm. he he did a lot of teaching. He did some playing around town. And then when he got the invitation, particularly a singer, Simon Estes, who would bring him on the road when he was doing a spirituals program in particular that my dad would play for him. Oh, wow. So, so once, once you get to 17, at, at what point did you start performing? Like, uh, you know, kind of, uh, you know, more or less what you're doing now, like getting out in front of the public and, you know, sharing your music that way. Well, my first performing was when I was six. That's when I started doing talent shows and I started mm. presenting myself in concert at home when we'd have family who came into town, <laughs> I would I would write up tickets for everybody and hand them out. I would put pens and pencils on the on the carpet to make aisles. And I would take my dad's car light that had a clamp on it and I would mm. clamp it onto my mother's coffee table. And then that would be my spotlight. So I, I made programs. I, there were res there were refreshments afterward. It was a whole it was a whole deal because <laughs> I knew I had studied. I thought this is what you do when you put on a concert. But so I exist. Uh, what, what what music were you playing at that time? Oh, man, I was playing all the hits. I was playing uh, a little <laughs> hand and exercises, I believe, <laughs> whatever I could. I played the Wild Horseman, all these beginner piano pieces. That was the first half. That was the, the structured program. And then there was an mm -hmm. intermission, obviously. <clears throat> and then I, and I wrote programs that I forget if I mentioned that. <laughs> but uh, in the second half, it said and more dot, dot, dot. And I would demonstrate percussion instruments because I also played drums. And uh, I always ended with Glenn Miller's In the Mood. Mm. And my dad would play the piano part if he were there. And if he weren't there, then I would just play along drums. I would play along drums with the recording. So is that something that we can still book today? Just, oh, for uh... sure. Yeah. <laughs> we, we could negotiate most anything. So <laughs> me playing along to the Glenn Miller recording. <laughs> So I, I'm always curious about this. Uh, I, I love your tagline, the, that, that classic meets cool. So mm -hmm. where did that come from? It came because I knew that I needed to give myself a category, but I didn't want to pick one that already existed. Because I, I looked at people like Yo-Yo Ma and Bela Fleck, and they're artists who defy easy categorization. They do. Yo-Yo mm -hmm. Ma plays classical, yes, but he also plays bluegrass and traditional Chinese music, like for Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Mm -hmm. And he plays whatever you call the album that he did with Bobby McFerrin. And I thought, well, how do I plan for a career that encompasses anything that I might do? And so I picked Classic Meets Cool because it's really, my, my music is really based on the story, on, on a story. Mm. And Classic Meets Cool is the shortest possible story I can tell about whatever it is I might be interested in. And creating. Oh, I like that. I like that a lot. Have you always wanted to be a professional musician? I started wanting to be a professional musician when I was about 16. I always liked making music, but I didn't really think about what I would do with my adult life until my junior year in high school mm. and thought, oh, well, I guess I should plan for what to do after I graduate. And it seemed going to college seemed the obvious thing to do. And I thought, well, what will I major in? And really, before that, I should say that before that, I thought I would be an engineer of some sort because I went to this math and science camp at a local university. 
and they talked about how much money engineers make. They talked about Bill Gates, and I thought, well, okay, I want to make a lot of money. I'll do that. <laughs> and then I took AP Physics, and that was a rude awakening. <laughs> I realized I don't have what it takes to be an engineer. I don't really care for this stuff all that much. I liked the little exercise that we did where you had to get a rocket propelled by balloons or whatever mm. close to a target. And I did well in that. But when it comes to electricity, I'd, I don't know what I'm doing. So get me out of this. And then, and then I looked around and thought, well, what else am I good at? Oh, music. I could do that. Okay. Excellent. Was the plane always uh, piano as the, the main instrument? I picked piano at about the, at the same time because I figured that it was the most professionally viable of the mm. instruments that I could play. It was either that or drums. And I played drums a lot. I was actually a professional drummer starting my sophomore year of high school, mostly oh. in my dad's trio. So it was, uh, it was nepotism, but still, <laughs> you still picked me. I think it still counts. So. Yeah. But uh, I realized that the potential for being a drummer was much less than the potential as a pianist. So mm. that's when I that's when I decided to start focusing on the piano. Interesting. So at what point did you start touring, like as uh, as as a as a piano player? I started trying to tour when I was well, right after I graduated from college. That's when my dad and I said, "Hey, let's do let's be a duo." Not thinking about how difficult it was for many people to get two pianos, um, not realizing what you had to do to actually get booked at venues, not realizing how long it would take to go from meeting someone to where they actually wanted to book you. That was in 2009 that the initial desire, the initial action was taken. And it's been a, it was a slow growth until I was able to make that full time or at least the bulk of what I do, but it started in 2009. Gotcha. And what, what led to it, you know, to that growth, like actually being able to make it, you know, bulk of your full-time job? Well, the first thing was realizing that there were such things as conferences and that mm. we should go. And then really what took it to the next level was, was attracting management, attracting someone who would book us. So I just listened to your interview with Jennifer Morris and Laurel Cannon, who are my, my managers at Siegel Artist Management. And I, I joined with, we joined with Laurel first before she was with Siegel. Yeah. She was at Center Productions. And I, at the time, it was still just uh, the duo that she was booking. And uh, I, was, I was trying another management path with my solo career. Really, that was, that was what it took to, to get going. And then right as I was about to take off, then COVID hit. And then I, had, I thought, oh, no, is this, is this ever going to happen? Yeah, but speaking of that, so that that takes us to about 2020, and then mm -hmm. in you know right at the beginning of 2021, um, being named one of Smithsonian's top 10 innovators to watch in 2021, what was that like? I mean, getting that that nomination and that recognition. Well, I didn't realize how big a deal it was at first. I just got this email from someone saying, "Hey, would you answer some questions?" Um, we've we've identified you as an innovator to watch, and so I said, "Okay." cool. And then I just, I didn't think much of it until I posted it on online and on Facebook, it was getting a ton of traction, ton of likes and comments and such. And I thought maybe this is a bigger deal than I realized. <laughs> and it turns out that it was, <laughs> but I got that because it's kind of funny. Um, I was commissioned to write a piece for a, the centennial of a landmark moment in my city's history, Tulsa. Uh, we had a massacre that was divided along racial lines in 1921. And I was commissioned to compose a piece in commemoration of that event. 
in 2021. And so they were honoring me for that. Never mind the fact that they had never heard the piece. Nobody had heard the piece. I had only just re- I had only just turned it in. And it was due <laughs> at the end of 2020. But they heard about it and I thought, well, this guy's something special anyway. So so I got the otter without uh, proving that I, I deserved it. But I, I think, I hope that in the meantime, since then, I have proved that I deserve it. For those that, that, that may not know, can you touch a little bit about the Tulsa Massacre? Just sort of like a, a brief history of that? There was a, a thriving black district in Tulsa. Um, on the north side, it was called Greenwood. It was along Greenwood Avenue. And it was doing very well. It was called Black Wall Street. And there was um, jealousy among some people seeing how well that district was doing. Mm-hmm. And there was an incident involving a black elevator operator, white young woman. Figuratively, it blew up. The, the town became embroiled in tension because there was an allegation that this operator was inappropriate with this young woman. And so it sparked a desire to destroy, or the desire was already there. It, it ignited mm-hmm. this desire. And uh, so Black Wall Street was leveled. It was set on fire. There were reports that there were aircraft in the air. Um, there were uh, reportedly about 50 people or so were killed, but the estimate is higher than that. that the, but that's the official number. And so it, re- it decimated Black Wall Street and it didn't really recover after that. And for a long time, people in Tulsa didn't know that it happened. And so there's now been an attempt to recognize what have to do what, what can be done to repent for um, yeah. The travesty that occurred with something like that. I mean, something that ha- holds that much for for your city's um, history. And how how do you go about creating something like that? Like writing a a, a musical composition um, around that. I thrive on constraints, on focusing my energy. And so mm. I would, I was commissioned by Chamber Music Tulsa. So it was, it needed to be a, a work of chamber music. And I thought, well, I need to be playing it too. So I thought this chamber ensemble needs to have a piano. And then I thought, well, I want to be able to tour this eventually. Mm. And uh, the fewer people you have on tour, the more feasible it is, the less expensive it is. And so the smallest ensemble you can have as a chamber ensemble is a trio. There are three of us. So that helped me narrow down what the instruments were. But then as far as the the theme, as far as the message that I was trying to communicate, I realized that it was too much to try to communicate everything. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, well, let me look at what firsthand accounts have to say about this event and see if there's anything in there that I can reflect specifically and not worry about about everything surrounding the event. I wanted to get as close as possible to the, the event itself. And so I found an, an eyewitness account by a woman who wrote that she and her daughter, when they realized what was happening, went upstairs to the bedroom and read a chapter or two of the Psalms of David. And I thought, oh, well, that's that's what I was looking for, because there are there are Psalms that are lament Psalms. They are full of darkness, of, of um, I don't want to say despair, but grief or sorrow. Mm. And so I found what's ri- widely renowned to be the darkest of those psalms, which is Psalm 88. And there's a a verse in there that says, my soul is full of troubles and my life draweth nigh unto the grave. And so I titled the piece, my soul is full of troubles and essentially just tried to communicate a feeling of grief and of sorrow. And that's, that's how I was able to focus. And I also picked a form. I picked sonata form Mm -hmm. because I really like that form in it. And I needed to have eight to 12 minutes of music and that was a way to have a roadmap, essentially. So I, mm-hmm. I, I tried to take as many 
constraints and put them upon myself as I could so that it became a manageable, a manageable, I don't want to say problem to confront, but a manageable solution to find. There we go. Yeah. That's really interesting. Um, mostly like from the artist standpoint, because like a lot of times when we talk about commissioning work, uh, you know, we, we try to not put almost any constraints on the artist, but I think mm -hmm. it's interesting that, that in order for you to go through that process, like you, it made it easier to put those constraints and it makes sense. Like it makes perfect sense as a, as a process to, to do that. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that necessarily a an organization. I'm not recommending that you do yeah. put more constraints. Um, I may, if let's see, if somebody commissions me and they don't constrain me very much, I'll just find, I'll search for them, and I'll create them for myself. So this is not. I'm not saying that you should do anything differently. It's just yeah. the way that I work best uh, is is that way. Is this a piece that you are currently touring or will tour? I will tour it. So it was a 15 minute piece. I went over, over time, but that's fine. <laughs> they just, they just needed a minimum. If I wanted to go over, they, they just weren't paying me any extra, <laughs> but it, it told the story of that event. But I thought this story seems incomplete because Tulsa has endured since the massacre in 1921. And so did the Psalms. The Psalms didn't end in 88. Mm -hmm. um, and so I thought there's more to this story and I want to tell the rest of the story. And then I would also, again, more constraints. I thought this is not enough of a piece to tour by itself. I need more of a work. And it's not enough of a piece to record and put out as an album by itself. It needs to be more substantial. And so I, I proposed to Chamber Music Tulsa and they accepted that I write two more movements. So if you're looking at this piece, it's basically the hero's journey in, in the form of a, of a piano trio. There's struggle, which is my soul is full of troubles. There's discovery, which is unto thee have I cried. And it's also taken from the same chapter in the Psalms. And then there's triumph, which is the heavens shall praise thy wonders. And that's from the next chapter in the Psalms. And that tells a universal story arc. Uh, it tells really what's an aspirational story arc for the massacre in Tulsa, because I don't, mm. I don't think we've arrived at, at the triumph, but it yeah. is something that we work toward and, um, and we, we strive ever to, to achieve it. And so that piece, um, all put together, those are the three movements. It's called there arises light in the darkness. And mm. that will premiere at the end of September here in my hometown of Tulsa. And I will start touring that with a program of the same title starting in 2024. So when you tour that, um, will there, I mean, will you accompany that with sort of the, the history of that moment to be, or will you talk about that on stage? Is that, have you sort of decided that? I have, I have, I will talk about the event on stage. I'll talk about the massacre, uh, when I introduce that piece, but really mm. the piece I try to make, I try to make all my programs universal. I try to make you see yourself in the story. So the the focus of the program is not so much that event exactly. It's about the struggle, discovery, and triumph that we all experience in one way or another. And so the first half, I, I, I say I've been running through the script that I'll mm -hmm. deliver at this premiere in September. And I say that I will represent we will represent the phrase there arises light twice. Mm -hmm. Once in the second half with my piece. And But once in the first half with pieces from the classical canon. So we'll start out with two pieces that are written in elegy, in, in mourning. So Rachmaninoff's Piano Trio and also uh, Ravel's Pavan for a Dead Infant. 
and then we'll we'll do two pieces that are discovery that are in in this case they're prayer they are Gounod's Ave Maria based off of Bach's first prelude and Foray's Gabriel Foray's Liberame from his Requiem and then we'll end with Triumph which is Chopin's heroic polonaise so these are I, I like this because I don't usually play a lot of strictly classical music because so many other people do it so well but this is a way to program it in a way that's that is thematic it's more about the overall journey than it is about that specific event excellent i i i like that like i think that, that that's a really great way to to make it more encompassing i mean you also get to to share that history and you get mm-hmm. to share that piece but you're right it's uh sometimes like something like that can be very heavy and very very sort of difficult to make amends with yes um when it's and the you, sole focus. Yes. And you may think, well, I'm not from Tulsa or I'm not, it, it can be difficult to connect with. So what is something that can connect with everyone? That's my goal. Yeah. Smart. I like that. So one of the main reasons that we wanted to have you on here to talk is not only are you a musician, a composer, a performer, um, but you are now a, an author. Amazingly um, enough. So let's, let's talk about your book. Yeah, it is a storybook, an illustrated storybook about a song that I co-wrote with a man who died six years before I was born. And I wrote it because I knew that the story of this song needed to be told outside of the song itself. Mm. Don Fagan is the lyricist for this song, which is called Honey, If It Wasn't For You. He was uh, a songwriter. He wrote a couple songs that Charlie Pride recorded, but he died when he was 38 because he had cystic fibrosis. And so he knew from the time he was a boy that he would not live as long as most. But he decided that he wanted to live a full life anyway. So he got married when he was 24. His wife, Linda, also knew that he would not live as long as most, but she agreed and, and wanted to marry him. And so that's a, just a beautiful tale of, of sacrifice yeah. uh, on, on her part. And he couldn't hold down a full-time job. And so he used his, ways, his way with words and his love for music to write songs. And he was, he was relatively successful. Uh, having those songs recorded by a Grammy-winning artist. But he was in and out of the hospital with this disease. Living till 38, especially at that time, was quite an achievement. So he died, and he left behind these boxes of song lyrics. His wife, Linda, put them away because she couldn't bear to look at them. And it was only after she met me, she saw me perform here in Tulsa at a local show. And we became friends. Only a couple years into our friendship did she say, did I ever tell you that my husband was a songwriter? And I said, no. And she said, yeah, he's, he, she told me about him, about his cystic fibrosis. And she said, he left behind these boxes of song lyrics. I wonder if you would want to look at them. And now. I said, absolutely, I do. Not realizing that I was accept. She just said this offhandedly, I, I later learned. But I, hadn't, I did not realize that she hadn't confronted this part of her life for 40 years. This was in mm. 2021 that we had this conversation. So when I said that I wanted to see those lyrics, she had to then look inside these boxes for the first time in decades and relive this part of her life. And so it wow. took her several months to do that. I would remind her and, and gently but persistently say, hey, Linda, if you want me to look at this, I would like to see it. And so she ultimately did hand over this material. She said, I don't, I don't want to burden you with it. That was one of her excuses. I don't want to mm-hmm. burden you with it. And I'm sure that was true. Um, but I knew that the best story that could come out of this is that if I were to find lyrics to a song that he wrote about her, because in my writer mind, 
um, I thought there are three characters to the story and we each need to have as much to do as possible. So I needed to find, I needed to be able to contribute something creatively. And so I found a song that I did not have sheet music with it, just had words and chord symbols. But I thought, I don't know what the melody is, so I'll make up my own chords. It was it's called Honey, If It Wasn't For You. And it's about how she goes away to work and he stays at home to write songs. But if it weren't for her, he would have nothing to write about. Yeah, it's a, it's a very sweet song. Like, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I, uh, I, you know, it's funny. It, there's been so much more with this project than just writing the song that I've mm -hmm. that I sometimes forget that that's a part of it. <laughs> that that's actually <laughs> the main part. Uh, there is a book, but it's the book is about the song. I knew how special this was, and I I, I didn't um, I I got her permission to share it. I I didn't want to do anything with without her blessing, but she yeah. she did allow me to take steps to share it. And I thought the simplest way to tell this story would be to write it as a storybook. And then I thought, oh, well, I should just do that. And so it's it's about 700 words. It's in the format of a children's book, uh, but it's not really, ch some children may enjoy it, but it's really intended to be for adults to, uh, to hear the song and really appreciate how beautiful a story it is. I think that there are a lot of children that will like it, um, especially so. once you once you accompany it with with the great illustrations as well. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'm kind of curious when you when you first got the lyrics and, and sort of like looking through those boxes, did you have that idea to to write this story um, from that point? Or was it once you found the lyrics that you were like, oh, I really want to share this with with other people because of the just the experience of it all? Yes, I knew I would w want to do something. But initially, my thought was actually to make a short documentary, a 10 minute documentary film because I, I'm a big fan of Chef's Table, mm. and I love uh, Formula One, Drive to Survive. And so I thought, uh, documentaries are all the rage, so I should do one of those. And as I was considering what would be necessary, there would be a lot of funding necessary. There would be a lot of outside expertise, director, director of photography, all this. And I thought, I'm going to need to convince a lot of people that this is worth doing, how do you give a five-minute pitch for a 40-year story? And the thought exercise that I used was, oh, I should write it as a storybook to condense it as much as possible. And then I realized that that was much more feasible to do. And then if somebody wanted to do something with the story, here's the pitch. Read this book. You'll understand what, where their potential is. So it actually it came about a little bit later. But I knew that I would want to do something. Yeah. Wow pure vanity question what's it like to see yourself illustrated in a book <laughs> it's kind of wild <laughs> i i did not know what i was asking of the illustrator it is mm. i'm not a visual artist so there was never a, a question that i would illustrate it but to portray someone you really need to be able to see that person and and move around that's why that's why artists use models the greatest artists ever have used models. And so I didn't realize that I was asking Callie Ward, who did a marvelous, a marvelous yeah. job. I was asking her who lives in Idaho to do something that was nearly impossible. But what was amazing is that I ended up getting a concert in, in Idaho 20 minutes from where she lived that fall. So she came and then we stayed afterward and she took lots of pictures. And then I supplemented those pictures as well from home as I could. Thinking about what I was asking her to do, I just shake my head and think, "You idiot! How did? <laughs> how dare you?" <laughs> well, it's, one, it's one of those things like you, you don't know what you don't know, and right. all of a sudden, like uh, I I have this conversation with our graphic designer all the times. So I have to tell her like, 
I'm graphic design stupid. So yes. when I tell you this, like you got to tell me if this is possible or not. Yes. <laughs> please educate me. I don't know yes. what I'm doing, but I would like to know. So please tell me. Yes. So the book is out now. Yes. Um, and where where can people find that? They can go to book.baronryan.com and you can get the hardcover and there's also an ebook. So you have those two options that are right there. And I will say that the, the illustrations were done over the past year, but the text has been done since last summer. And so what's been fascinating and very gratifying, both for me and for Linda, as she's seen it, is mm -hmm. that I have read, usually, usually I perform uh, the song and read the book as my encore, since the rest of my, my solo performance isn't vocal. So it seems out of out of place. But if I do it as an encore, then it fits perfectly. Oh, so nice. I have read the story and performed the song for now thousands of people because I've done it all throughout my, my concerts this past year. And it has, it has never gone poorly. It's always probably the most meaningful part of, of the concert is that particular section. Yeah. I, I had seen the, the, the video that you had posted originally when you were telling people about this project and it coming out, which I was incredibly intrigued by because the story itself is really fascinating. Having just read it this morning, it was incredibly touching. Like there were, there are moments in there that like I could feel my eyes welling up because <laughs> it's just a very touching love story. And I mean, I can't imagine what it was like playing that for her the first time, seeing that, hearing that I read that part and like, I could just feel Feel my heart. Like, mm -hmm. It was just so, so touching. What, what guides me as an artist is, is that feeling, because I think that feeling is the evidence of beauty, mm. of beauty being witnessed. And, and what's really beautiful is a sacrifice made for someone else. I think that's what, that's what we try to do as artists. We, we try to make people feel good in a way that they sense that, oh, you care about me because you did this in a way that I would enjoy. Mm. Um, bringing somebody flowers does the same thing. Making someone dinner does the same thing. And this story is so beautiful because there's so much sacrifice implied in it. And most of it's not mine. Most of it is Linda's and Don's sacrifice for each other. Yeah. And so I am, it feels surreal. I am honored to be able to present this, uh, but I am not, I'm only the person who, who recognized the potential and then helped to get it to the people. But it's really Don and Linda who make this as beautiful a story as it is. So the book is Honey, If It Wasn't For You. Yes. Same title and as the song. Same title as the song. Um, well, actually, and we, we will link to that in, in, in the show notes to share that with, pe with people. One of the things that I think is really interesting about you as an artist is the way that you create um, and the way that you handle your compositions once they are are out there. Um, mm -hmm. the, like just about everything you create is is, is in the public domain for, for other creators to sort of put their own spin on it or use it and, and do that. And I'm fascinated by that because, you know, we are definitely like in an industry and in a time that is so focused on what can we make off of this and what mm -hmm. can we sell this for? So where did that idea come from? It comes from my mission as an artist. My, my mission is to discover and present the beauty I am uniquely positioned for mm. because I want the world to be a more beautiful place and it can be more beautiful the fewer restrictions I place on what I endeavor to create to make it more beautiful. So if I say that you have to pay me to, to play a recording of a song that I wrote, then I make it more difficult for people to hear and enjoy and be edified by that song. So I understand the reasons not to do it. I may make less money 
in the long term because of it. Honestly, I may make more. It's a Wonderful Life became popular only because it was in the public domain. <laughs> that's true. I mean, that's a I've, maybe you could argue against that, but that's a commonly held belief and, yeah. and link that's been drawn. Uh, and so, if if I want people to enjoy and appreciate my music, then I should put as few boundaries as possible. And so, really, that's why I do it because I want the the world to be more beautiful. And if I believe that my work can help that happen, then I should make decisions to make it possible. Hmm. Where did that mission come from? Or when, or when did it start? I wrote it last year, but it's, it's guided me. It's guided me since the time I created Classic Meets Cool. I just hadn't put words to it. Hmm. But I realized that I told you that I wanted to, to create a category that would encompass anything that I might do. I, I used examples of Bela Fleck and Yo-Yo Ma. I also, yeah. I, I look at people like, um, Harry Connick Jr. and Kelly Clarkson. I'm not a huge fan of either of them, but they both had TV shows. And you think, well, mm -hmm. how does a musician have a TV show and have it make sense? As I was writing this book and realizing that was going to come out, I thought, well, how do I make sense of all this that I'm doing? How do I put words to it? Because to me, it makes sense, but I may not be able to articulate that to somebody else. And so I was just, it was just a problem that I was trying to solve. How do I uh, justify all these different avenues of interest, writing a country-ish, folkish song and writing a book about it, but also writing a 40-minute piece for violin, cello, and piano, also making videos as I do. How does all that make sense together? And so the mission statement was my attempt to make that all make sense. And for someone to see the breadth of my work and think, oh, well, I understand now and not, why are you doing all this different stuff? Do you know of any other artist that that does this as well, like putting their work into public domain? I know they exist, mm -hmm. but I don't know. I don't know who they are exactly. I know that I've been shared. I've been sent. Um, he's not an artist, but he's he has a blog, and I think it's about marketing. And he makes it a point to make all his writing public domain. Gotcha. But I don't know of other musicians who are doing this, and many have counseled me against it. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, well, if I'm doing this for the good and not for my own profit, then uh, this is what I should do. And I think that I'll be okay. Whatever happens, I'll, I'll survive. And that's been true so far. Baron, to sort of shift topics entirely, I want to okay. talk a little bit about, you know, being a touring uh, musician um, mm -hmm. and, and what that is is like for you. One of the things I'd like to know is that at what point in, in your life did you completely make that shift? I know you said around, you know, 2009, you wanted to start going out on the road with your dad. At mm -hmm. what point did, you know, being a, a musician and being a touring musician become the bulk of your full-time work? That's been about two years now. So it was going to happen in 2021. No, sorry, 2020. Mm -hmm. And then COVID hit and didn't know what was going to happen with that. Thankfully, it, it turned out much better than I'd hoped. I was despairing for a little while, but it was uh, it was actually a very healthy year uh, in, in, all, in all terms. Yeah, so I, I was curious about that. Do you think that that may have helped you? Um, actually do better uh, in the past couple of years? Because I know from an outsider's perspective, what I saw was somebody who now had more time, um, also mm -hmm. had to basically learn how to interact with an audience in a way that they hadn't in the past. And mm -hmm. you were one of the few artists that shifted to video and shifted online, 
I won't say in an easy way, but also, but like in an effective way. I mean, mm. I don't think that you tried to, you know, just replicate what you were doing in front of a live audience. Like you figured out fun, like ways to make it fun. Um, mm. Was that something that you were working on pre-pandemic or it just happened to be like, well, this is what I've got to do now? It was both. I had done some video. I had been making videos for a long time to to more or less success. But when when we were all isolating, then I thought, well, I've got to do it now. The one thing that was nice is that it wasn't an isolated incident. It wasn't that yeah. only I couldn't get out. It was everybody. Yeah. So I thought everybody knows what's going on. <laughs> if this goes poorly, everybody's going to understand why, because yeah. we're all going through the same thing. And so I just thought, well, I think that one thing that proves us to other people and to ourselves as well is how we handle adversity. And so I thought, well, this is, this is one more instance of, of how you're going to show what you do when things don't go your way. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, well, I'll, I'll make the best of it that I can. And so, yeah, I, I do think that to some degree it, it did help me because I was being active and trying to develop and, and interact with people. And so I, I think people saw that and were, they were more on board than they might've been before. It helped making that decision to play piano and not drums <laughs> helped because I could play a, a concert by myself. Not everybody would, was able to do that. And mm -hmm. so there were now there are other things that they could do perhaps that I couldn't, but I was set up in a position that it was, it was feasible for me to continue interacting and, and offering the beauty that I had discovered. Do you have any advice for somebody that is looking to basically do what you're doing now? Somebody sort of just starting out that wants to be a, you know, a full-time musician. Man, I, I almost don't know how I got here. <laughs> because <laughs> I think, how do you, how do you replicate what I've done? I have no idea. The one thing that I will say is that it is a slog. It is, it takes more time and more effort than you can certainly see from the outside and that some people who encourage you to take a path like this uh, may know or may say to you, they'll say, do what you want or follow your dreams, um, um, do what you love, etc." And that could be great to do, but you don't always see the cost that is required mm -hmm. as well. I, I would say talk to as many people who are in the position that you'd like to be as you can. Uh, one thing that was difficult for me is that I didn't have people, at least in my geographical area, who were doing what I wanted to do. My dad is a fantastic musician, but I wanted to structure my career a little bit differently than he had. And so he didn't, he wasn't a great resource in that area. And there mm -hmm. are, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, there weren't a whole lot of people because usually if you're in that position, then you live elsewhere. So um, find as many people as you can to ask difficult questions of. What did you have to do to get to where you are? What do you still have to do? What still... Um, what is still a concern, um, and and then that person can give you more helpful advice, knowing you, more your specific situation, because so everybody's different from each other. Circling back to your mission statement um, and hearing what you just said, did creating your personal mission statement? I mean, by by knowing what 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 you wanted, did it help you take a step forward in your career? Certainly, and it helped me communicate to other people. A lot of what I do. Um, I've tried to, I think about beauty and I think about how it's not, it's kind of like humor. I, I, I see a lot of analogs between what I do and what a stand-up com comic does. 
Mm. If a stand-up comic is successful, if the audience laughs and there aren't institutions who will pay a stand-up comic salary and and make it so that people don't necessarily have to laugh because the, the salary is there anyway. You have to make people to laugh if you want if you want to survive. And so I I have tried to structure my career in a way that produces the same incentives. I haven't gotten a professorship as as a a musician as a as a piano professor. Uh, I I want to stay connected to the people, as strongly mm. connected to the people as I can. And so part of the reason that I do that is that I raise money for the projects that I undertake. I raise money for this book. I raise money for my last three albums. I needed to be able to communicate why what I did was important and not just prove that it was because a musician can play, make beautiful music and people can enjoy mm. it without being able to articulate what it is that is happening. But I knew that if I wanted to garner more support for more work in the future that I needed to be able to say, to communicate what it was that I was doing and why that it was important. And so it's been very helpful for that. It's been helpful. I say, I say my mission statement when I perform concerts, the concert is about the performer to some degree, but I want to turn it to communal event too. So I state my mission statement at the beginning. And that's a way of me talking about how the, the music that I'm going to play is really based around a story and not out around any category exactly. But then at the end, I say that beauty comes not just from professionals. And I, and I think it comes mostly from people who are not professional artists. It comes mm. from those that we're closest to, because those are the people who could make us feel a sense of wonder, the strongest. They can provide for us when we're not able to provide for ourselves. And so I, I use that. I try to talk about it as much as I can because I'm excited about it and because I, I think it helps uh, people understand what I do and also how they can take what my take my example and and offer beauty to the world in their own way. So when you were creating your personal mission statement, did you like read anything that that sort of inspired that or that helped you through that process? Not directly. I I took part in some entrepreneurship activities both in college and then afterward I was an mm -hmm. organizer for a local meetup, entrepreneurship meetup because I appreciate different perspectives from other disciplines besides the arts. We can we we get into our own silos, just as anybody gets into their own silos. And so I, I like that entrepreneurs consider there to be no problem that they can't solve. So the one thing that you talk about when you're, when you're crafting a business is what are we uniquely positioned for? So I mm -hmm. stole that language. And then beauty, I, uh, one of my favorite quotes is from Alexander Schmemann. He writes uh, to some, this is a paraphrase, beauty is never necessary, functional, or useful. And when expecting someone we love, we decorate the table with candles and flowers. We do all this not out of necessity, but out of love. And so I knew that beauty was important to the mission statement. And then discover and present. I like, I like thinking of myself not as creating, but as finding. There's less pressure that way, for one thing. <laughs> um, but I also don't think that I created it anyway. So it helps me to think of as discovering it. And then I like the word offer as well, but present was just a bit of a stronger word. Maybe I'll change it at some point, but I like presenting or, or offering it as basically it's a gift to the world. I didn't have examples while I was crafting it, but I had been mulling over those, those sentiments for years by the time that I actually wrote it. Yeah. I think this is something that I'm going to probably create for myself as well. I think that's a, like a really good idea, like your personal mission statement to kind of guide you. I highly recommend it. And I will say I'll confine it to my professional mission statement. Yeah. I haven't I haven't crafted a personal mission statement mm. exactly yet. But this is certainly as an artist, that's what my yeah. that's what my mission statement is. Yeah. So Baron, 
on our show, we have a time machine. Um, some people say it's real. Well, some say hypothetical. So, but I want to take you back um, to to the time, let's say 2009, um, when you were just getting ready to try to make this a you know a full uh, that you wanted to become a touring musician, primarily with your father. What is the advice that you would give yourself at that point? Go to arts conferences. I would tell myself what they were and that yeah. I needed to go, <laughs> even just as a visitor. Uh, that would have helped. Uh, that would have helped a lot just to know that process a little bit mm. sooner. Because I think it was about four years into that that I realized what that was. I, I could have advised myself to to write a mission statement to know what it is that I was doing. But I'm not sure that even knowing that I should do that, I could have been a I could have done it. Mm. Because there's a certain amount of just experience that you need. And maybe I would have done it a little bit sooner, but there was a lot that I had to go through just to, to discover what it was that I had to offer and how to put words to it. Mm. Um, I want to take you to one more point in your life and sort of very recently, I want to take you to the point where you decided to write your book specifically that point, because it's sort of a transition. It's sort of a, a, it's something, you know, completely new. What, What advice would you give yourself like embarking on something new like that? I would advise myself to coach the, my audience a little bit more on what was going on Mm. because I have all these thoughts. I make all these connections in my own mind. And then I just assume that everybody knows what's what's happening. And so one thing that uh, that I've realized, I I would do the same sort of book, I would make it illustrated, I would, uh, but I would, I would try to explain a little bit more effectively that it's for, it's for you. It's not just for your kids. Um, hmm. And maybe I'm not sure what what would have changed. I have some ideas of how I'm gonna make fun of myself and make a video a PSA <laughs> video uh, about that. But m- for much of it, I'm very, I'm very pleased with, with what's happened. So I think it was just about doing things that are outside of categories, because I think mm-hmm. that we can be surprised and delighted when that happens. Yeah. But sometimes I forget that I need to, that I have, that there are people following me. And if I run too fast, I'll lose them. <laughs> you know, I, I we, we talked a little bit before we started this interview and it never once occurred to me that this book wasn't just for everyone. Um, oh, because good. like, I think that children are smarter than we give them credit for. And I think that there's a lot of things that they can take away from this, especially because like, there's really fantastic illustrations. The other thing that it's sort of a nice reminder of is that, you know, we can all be children at heart. Like there's, it's okay to pick up, you know, an illustrated book or a storybook um, as, as an adult to, to learn something. I mean, mm-hmm. it's half the reason I still read graphic novels. Like, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's sort of the same thing. And so I think that people are, are going to love it for, for all ages. I mean, you know, maybe not two and three year olds, but right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Well, I hope so. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So I, I think it's great. Baron, anything else you want to add? It's been a pleasure to be with you, and thank you for having me on. My gosh, thank you, Baron. Appreciate it. All right, so in this interview, he talked about a lot of great things, but one of my favorite things is the children's book. (laughs) That's not a children's book. It's a book for everyone, but just hearing the process of it and the artistic process of it and the process of the illustrator... I loved it. And I love the book itself. We'll have the link to his website with the book uh, in the show notes, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. But I loved hearing about all of that and the different avenues of artistic interaction and getting to that point. 
It was really cool. I also think that what's really cool, if you go to his social media right now, he's got a couple great videos sort of joking about how people would, you know, think that this is a kid's book um, when, you know, clearly it wasn't is, is sort of the base of the joke. And that I think is really just a good learning opportunity to grow. His original concept was for it to be a documentary, a short documentary, but then it evolving into what it landed as, as a project made it much more universal to where it can be for children or for adults, and it is much more applicable through the avenue that it landed on. Now it's so universal, and I, I think that's such a beautiful place for it to land. Yeah, and I mean, he spoke of the gentleman in the beginning of knowing that his life was going to be on the shorter end, but that he still wanted to live it fully. And then all these years later, his story and his love being able to shine through in a new way to those people. I mean, it's just an incredible story. It almost doesn't feel real. You know, I can't say that I wasn't like <laughs> sweating from my eyes when I was listening to that. <laughs> I think it was also really interesting, the conversation that you two had about alongside the mission statement, trying to make different avenues of artistic expression make sense. Um, and it reminded me of a conversation, I think that was just like floating in the ether I don't know, maybe 10 years ago about how uh, artists feel super pigeonholed and they can't be what, you know, what we would call triple threat. Right. So like movie stars in the 40s and 50s, they would sing, they would dance, they would act, they would do all of the things. Right. You had to in order to make it uh, in the industry. But people have felt like very pigeonholed. Oh, TV actor can't do film. You can't do Broadway. You can't do all these things. But yet you do see, like he mentioned, um, you're seeing people kind of break those barriers. So I think it's interesting that he feels like he has to be very intentional about setting his career up so he can do multiple, like multiple things. And as, and as he said, it make it make sense. Um, I would never expect an artist to only have one way of expressing themselves or only work in one medium. I would never expect that of an artist. So I just, I don't know. It was very interesting to me that he thinks so intentionally about that and setting himself up um, and making sure his audience is never going to pigeonhole him into one thing. Yeah, Katie, I think it goes back to training and you know, a lot of music teachers or art, you know, people who are teaching the art, they get you so focused on that one style and they almost make it seem like, you know, that's what you have to do. That's your track and that's all you can do. But a lot of the artists that we know that develop and grow, they discover that that drive that they have inside that that they want to just create is applicable in so many different ways. And, and it's great that Baron discovered that. Yeah, I thought it was interesting, too, that he talked at the beginning about thinking that he wanted to be an engineer. I mean, and possibly for all the wrong reasons, <laughs> or at least not the reasons that you become an artist necessarily. But like getting to the end of it and thinking about like prior to making the piece, he's thinking about, is it tourable? How many people? Um, and and building the constraints around what the show is around so many of the just business means of being an artist. One, I felt like I hate kind of hearing an artist talk about their career that way because it's you you want it to be easier for somebody who is a creative to be able to put their joy in the world. But at the same time, it's so smart. It's and and you know, maybe it's, you know, kind of growing up sort of next to it kind of gives you that idea of all of the different things that you also have to do in addition to being an incredible performer. But just how much thought he had put into the reasons for all of the nuances of the art that he was creating, I thought was like so uh like so like an engineer um and i was like don't beat yourself up more <laughs> and maybe it did kind of work out. on that business uh 
point, Danielle. I, I'm still intrigued and not sure I fully understand, but I appreciated his putting original works out on public domain. You know, that kind of bothered me because I'm like, no, you're an artist. You should be paid for your works and, and your works have value. But uh, he had a really interesting take on that. And I, I you know, it just made me think uh, in a very different way than I've ever thought about that before. And that's what artists are supposed to do. As right? an artist and primarily in the physical form being a mural artist, all of that artwork is just for public display and there are no residuals or there are nothing like once I, once it's done, it's on a wall in the public and it's out. I identify in that same way because whenever I'm creating those, they are for specifically for the community and for the public to enjoy. The other thing about his process of creating work that I also identify with is wanting to have the constraints of how to create it and that that being an asset. And this is for me personally, um, but whenever everything's wide open, it's really hard to fine tune down to just exactly what thing you're going to do and how you're going to do it. Whereas whenever there's just a few constraints in place, it allows you to focus your creativity. And for me, it's the problem solver in me that looks at those constraints uh, through a problem solving lens to land the creativity within that lens. Yeah, I've thought a lot about constraints in art and and I agree with you, Josh. I feel like learning to be an artist in whatever medium or form you know, it kind of takes up visual performing, whatever you learn how to create or use the basics of those art forms within constraints. There's, there's always something that's a constraint and like in, you know, in visual art, it's, it's a canvas, right? Like it, it's got, it's got to stay on the canvas. There are constraints that exist in getting started. And then, you know, for me, I grew up in the theater. And so then, you know, your next biggest constraint is usually like money, right? Financially. So especially a lot of us grow up figuring out how to make art with like whatever it is that we have. And so to me, so much about being an artist and being a creative is the just the foundation that we have able to create in the art form using the constraints as a positive as a way to say like this, this sure this is a thing that exists but it's not bad I'm still going to make awesome art despite what, what you know whatever the situation is and you can have all the money in the world and like you know no people to do it right that's still a constraint um, but it's like how you use those things in order to still accomplish what you were going to do. Cause like, we're not going to back down. Like we're not going to give up. His creation process specifically and the piece that he created for the commemoration of black wall street to have such beauty in a piece about such a heavy subject is such an amazing feat. And just hearing how he was listening to stories about it and found that one piece of that one story that he was going to build the entire thing off of where they ran upstairs and were reading from Songs of David and then used that one piece to then build from, which was beautiful. I haven't known Baron for a long time. I met him at APAP just this year and I got to sit down with him and, and he told me this a lot of this story that's in this interview and I was really intrigued and I, I can't wait to see him again this next one to hear even more because I have follow-up questions now, especially after <laughs> after this interview. Uh, one other part of the conversation, Kevin, you had with Baron about building his career and getting into the industry and finding representation and that piece of it was, I hear this echo of other conversations of like, they didn't know about conferences. They didn't know how to take that first step into making connections. And so it just raises for me 
this question of like, how do we do a better job of spreading that message or getting people into the into the framework that we have built as an industry, removing those barriers, you know, not having that gatekeeping? Like, how do we just do better in helping artists or young administrators or young agents or people who want to just participate in the field? How do we get them in more quickly because um, it's not the first time we've heard an artist say or we met some folks at max right this past fall that were like yeah i didn't i've been trying to do this for years this is the first time i ever i like this is the first time i've ever been to a conference i just learned that conferences exist so oh, how do we as an industry do better in that and getting that message out recruiting people in giving them access to that I don't know what the answer is necessarily, but I just had this little thing in the back of my brain that's going like, oh, this this is an issue. We've got to we've got to work together to figure this out. I think a publicly accessible podcast is a great start. <laughs> that's a great idea, Josh. But I think, Katie, you're right. I mean, there is, you know, I think this is a challenge that our industry and a lot of industries are always trying to face. And part of that, I think, is on, you know, our, our local arts networks who are doing, you know, things more on the ground in a localized community to be able to create those networking opportunities and create those resources because most of these people are finding these things out later, like once they get a bit more involved. And so maybe there's a way to catch them earlier. Well, friends, thank you for taking the time with me today. And a big thank you to Baron Ryan for sitting down with me. Honestly, a conversation that I could have had, you know, two or three more hours of. He's got a really interesting history. So uh, go check him out and support him. So thank you all. We'll see you here next time on There's No Business Like. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening to There's No Business Like. Our producers and hosts are Brian Zelmer, Josh Benson, Kevin Maynard, Katie Miller, and me, Danielle Van Hoek. Views expressed in this podcast are ours alone and are not reflective of the organizations we are a part of. Keep up with us at nobusinesslife.com. There you'll find links to all of our episodes and socials. If you like this podcast, give us a like, a follow, a review, or our favorite, a five-star rating. Oh, wait, what was that site? <laughs> I got it. Don't worry. It is nobusinesslife.com. Do I sound out bus ines every time I type it? Yep, sure do. Stay in touch, my friends. Like, the thing is, like, I want to write a real one, but I also want to tell you a snarky one. Oh, I actually, I would love to hear your, your snarky one. Yeah, we no longer care about your real one. Yeah, your real one is, like, irrelevant now. <laughs>